A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I help others to flourish and to find ways to really thrive in their lives. And one of the best ways we can do that is even how we look at our stories and how we tell them and how we really find our positivity within them. So as I reflect back, I grew up in the suburbs of Long Island. I was then and still am a member of what I call a sibling dream team. There were three of us originally. I'm the oldest of three. My sister's married, so we got a fourth to join the club. And I grew up upper middle class, always felt very fortunate um, to be part of such a loving family with really involved parents. My parents both had their jobs for, you know, decades. Uh, my dad ran a clothing store. His parents started. My mom was a teacher in the New York city public schools and they were always really available because of that, the schedule that those jobs involved. Right. Sure. So like always cheering in the stands when I had a volleyball game, I am five, one for reference, but somehow when you grow up in a town where there aren't that many tall people, you can make the volleyball team when you're five, one. And I was really lucky to be able to participate in a lot of great activities after school. I love gymnastics. I got to go to sleepaway camp. So I, you know, look back on my childhood and felt very lucky and privileged. And especially as I sort of got out into the world more, I realized the good fortune that I had had even more because sometimes when you're growing up in a specific town and, you know, you're kind of surrounded, you know what you're surrounded by. And in our town, there was a lot of, a lot of families who were far wealthier than we were. So it was easy to notice that too, but really like taking a more global view of it, I was really, really privileged. And I I was a pretty well-rounded kid and, you know, there wasn't one sport that I was singularly good at, but I tried it all and that kind of a thing. And I set my eye on Harvard pretty early, like something in seventh grade, I saw maybe us news and world report. Something said Harvard was the best. And I had a fierce competitive streak in me. I had been told I was smart from a very early age. I had done well. And so I set my eye on Harvard in seventh grade, which also meant that I had the interesting twist of being a seventh grader. So I grew up in a very Jewish town. Sure. Like I never had a more happening social life than when I was 13 and had three bat mitzvahs every single weekend. And most of us chose a theme for our bat mitzvah or bar mitzvah. And my theme was definitely unique because it was colleges, (laughs) which is not what most, most 13 year olds are picking. Um, and I naturally sat myself at Harvard. My table was Harvard and, you know, I, I kind of had to live up to that. Right. Because like I, I needed to ultimately get in there and I don't think I realized like, oh, this is not a sure thing. And so high school was, was really me throwing in myself into school. I will say that growing up in the town was called great neck. Um, there was a lot that was great about it. And also there were things about it that were really tough and socially, I never felt like I quite fit in. I Mm -hmm. I didn't have a really good group of friends. And then here's, here's the lens that I can look back on that now, right? Like these positivity tips 
and how we make meaning out of things. I didn't have a lot of great friends in high school. I had some teachers who were incredible mentors and created a friendship with me that was everything in that moment. But I didn't have a lot of friends, you know, like my group. Yeah. And because of that, I have actively leaned into friendships in a way throughout every other part of my life that I don't know that I would have because it was something I knew was missing from that part of my life. And so I see that, you know, looking back as a gift because I understood what it felt like to not belong. And I therefore craved that. And so when I got to college, which was Harvard, Mm -hmm. I, um, you know, like two of my roommates from freshman year randomly assigned initially, we were not sure we were matched on anything other than height. And yet they're two of my best friends to this day. And all of, you know, I look back at all aspects of, of college and it, it really is all about the friendship. I mean, Harvard was great for me because I met incredible people. I think academically, I could have gotten what I got there elsewhere. There are moments I thought I could have gotten better elsewhere because Harvard's very much focused on their name and the research and, you know, all of that. It's not always focused on the undergrads. But I was surrounded by extraordinary classmates. And that was an incredible privilege. And when I got there, I thought I was going to major in physics because I loved math and science so much in high school. My mom was a math teacher. I had a mad scientist physics teacher. And I took that first semester of physics and I was with classmates. I'm pretty sure who'd been doing physics since they were five years old. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know if I'm really meant to be doing this. Like, I didn't want to become a physicist. At the time, I thought I wanted to become a lawyer. But I, you know, was like that. That was a real moment for me where I had to reflect. I'm really not happy with this course that I thought was the course, the path I was meant to take. I wrote on my application. I was going to major in physics. And I remember being super unhappy at this place that I had aspired to go for so long. And my dad, he, he kind of mentioned psychology. Like, I think you would really like a psychology class. And it was going into the second semester I was at school. And as it turned out, and I have a crazy memory for day parts and times Mm -hmm. and calendars and physics, the second semester of physics and the first semester of psychology that spring both met Tuesday, Thursday at 10 a.m. So I couldn't do both. I couldn't like stick with the path I thought I was supposed to be on and also try this other one and and see and compare, which is my kind of way of doing things. And so I went to that first physics class. And in that moment, it just spoke to my heart. My dad had been so right. And I remember the teaching assistant in a section that week, that first week said, put your pens down. You're going to remember everything you learn in here because you're going to enjoy learning it. It was not how physics was taught for the record. And I, you know, everything, like something woke up in me in that moment. And what a gift to be able to experience that so early in college. Of course, in that moment, it felt so late, like, oh my God, now I'm a a semester behind in psychology. But, you know, I wasn't behind, right? There's that, the universe sometimes, I don't think I realized this, certainly not when I was 18, but that concept of we are where we're meant to be. And when we stop worrying about where we think we're supposed to be for whatever reason, 
and just lean into the fact like, wow, how lucky am I that I discovered this now and not a year from now. And I have three more years here to explore this. And that really set the stage for a lifelong passion for psychology that has, has really remained with me ever since. Um, I didn't lean into it professionally until a few years ago, but I, I knew I loved that material and that was amazing. Break. I mean, you were talking really about what I would say that the choice to be positive, right? Um, you know, we've said it a few times. I've had other psychologists on the show. We know that naturally speaking, you know, as human beings, we're wired to a negative bias. I mean, I, I think that, that, that naturally it's part of our protection mechanisms. When you talk about fight or flight, the, these are things that kept us aware. And so sometimes if there's a right and a wrong way to take a situation, you know, our bias will, will take us to the wrong side more often than not if we don't have a, a high level of awareness. And under stress in particular, I think that negative side can be triggered so much easier. Here you were in it now, your, your, your post original surgeries, you should have been clear. You now have a, a, a diagnosis that, that quite frankly, shouldn't have, shouldn't have happened, but it did, you know, stage four, which in and of itself is just scary hearing those two words together. Um, I, I guess I want to explore a little bit more. I mean, there had to be a moment that that felt like it just kind of took you right down. And how did you choose to be positive in that moment? What's the advice that you would give others? Because because I know a lot of people that would hear those things and they would just, you know, curl up in a ball. And and unfortunately, that I think that that even takes us to a point of, of becoming kind of what we call a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? I mean, I've watched people under those kind of circumstances just wither, wither away. And you are thriving. I mean, I, you know, our audience can't see you, can't see you on screen. No one would know that you've got anything going on with you. You clearly are, are, are thriving in your life because of this decision point. So how do you do that? How do you actually, in, in, in one of the toughest moments choose to be positive. So in that very moment, I want to be clear. There was a moment I was walking across 23rd street in Manhattan when the oncologist finally called me and she sounded chipper. So I actually thought I had caught a break. I'm like, okay, so it's not cancer. She goes, Oh no, it is right. And this was the hip biopsy. So yeah. like in that moment in my head, it's like stage four, right? In that moment I cried and I was so grateful though. I remember there was a friend walking down the street with me. So I, in that moment, how grateful was I that I wasn't alone? And so there are these little moments where we can choose. And when I say choose positivity, uh, there's also that toxic positivity. I don't mean it's a bandaid over the rest, mm -hmm. but alongside that incredible fear I felt in that moment, there was a friend who was holding me while I was on the phone. And then a block later, my sister was nearby with my then um, at the time, four-year-old nephew. And that kid and his two little sisters bring me so much joy and keep me so present. So it can be really helpful to know yourself yeah. because that whole day became a series of, okay, what do I need in this moment? Right. So often when we have like, yes, that diagnosis moment and stage four is a terrifying thing. Like it is terrifying. And to say it out loud 
and, and staging is sort of the common language of cancer. So often that's the question someone will ask, like, well, what stage? And if you say stage four, for the look that that returns is one where I've had to coach myself to remember what my doctors tell me and what, what I know to be true in this moment, right. And rather than what someone else is putting on me. And so that day, that day I learned I was metastatic. I then had spent a few hours with one friend, a few hours and a couple slices of pizza with another. And there's nothing that good New York pizza can't make feel a little bit better. Yeah. I hear that. And then I went to my sister's apartment and then we were with her kids and my parents came over and my brother and, you know, we build our teams in life. And one thing I say regularly is that this whole cancer journey, it has been my body, but has been my family's cancer. And having that support system, it can be your actual family, your chosen family. I also have friends who were great. My boss was incredible. And so just knowing who to turn to, we don't have to solve a problem in the moment it happens. We don't have to get from A to Z. And I think that's sometimes where we struggle, where we can't feel, we can't find that positivity. We need to get from A to B and B to C and C to D. I had doctors who were going to figure out the plan, right? I had great teams. I actually have gotten my doctor, my, my original oncologist at Mount Sinai and my sorry, my original and my additional at Memorial Sloan, they now work together. I am lucky that so far I've been able to have them, you know, become a team for me. And so I get both their opinions. And that was partially something that I helped to co-create because it was important to me because my cancer had kind of outsmarted or or not behaved in a way that was aligned with what they expected. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to get two great brains on this. And so we build our teams. And that was some of the very, very first advice my boss back at Time Warner had given me the day I was diagnosed. This is where your executive skills come in handy. And so when I look at that day, that's how in that moment, it doesn't mean that we don't feel some of the darker emotions, but we learn how to cultivate light even in those moments of darkness so that they can coexist. Yeah. You know, the, the, the concept of the team, and, and we could talk about any major issue. I mean, yours obviously is, you know, is, is a big one, life-threatening cancer diagnosis, but everybody goes through different points of adversity. And when you try to go through it alone, you try to figure it out alone, you don't have a support network, the information becomes very, very limited. And so does the experience to get beyond it. And I think when we get into this negative mindset, it makes it even worse. It creates stress. And we know that stress shuts down the creativity of the mind. So, you know, surrounding yourself with a team of people who are there to support you, people you trust, people to help you, you know, actually, it doesn't answer the question, but it opens the door to moving towards the answer. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. 
At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. See you there. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. Menal is, um, well, I, I don't want to say former. I mean, you, you are a consummate entrepreneur, but you started your life as an engineer and still employ a lot of engineering in what you do. Gone through a number of transformations. Um, you know, helped, you've helped kids. You've, you've done a lot of things with the work that you've done. There's, there's a lot to, to Menal's story. And, um, and so I, th- I think it's going to be just a great interview today. I'm looking forward to, to hearing the greater detail. But um, as, as you know from, from our our conversation a little while ago, we always like to start with a little bit of history. And so I wonder if you could um, share your story with our audience. How did you, how did you get to become the consummate entrepreneur that you are today? Sure. The, you know, I, I, the, my youth was a really middle-class youth in New Jersey. Um, that's, I suppose, is not so interesting of a story. Although um, my high school weirdly has produced a number of entrepreneurs who you've definitely heard of, um, and which, which is sort of just random. And so I will say that maybe there was something there about the, you know the mix of people I was around um, in just when I was growing up. But I think you know where the story starts is really is just I think it's a bit of a, is my personality. Like I remember in seventh grade. I guess, I guess I just used to ask so many questions all the time. And I remember that the kids, the other kids started calling me the question queen. And I just, I just always felt like I needed clarification. You know, when the teacher would ask, say to do something, I always had a question and I can totally see why that annoyed everybody. Um, but you know, for me, there's, there's two big things always are, but why, you know, somebody says to do something, but why? And I also always want to know, like, well, what's the goal? Like, what, what is it that you actually want? So if a teacher says, yeah, I remember the teacher, teacher is saying something like, I want you to write a story, which is a very vague request of a right. child. And you're like, well, what's the goal? Like, are you trying to get me to write as many words as possible? Is this about vocabulary? Are you trying, like, what are we trying to do here? And I guess by nature, that sort of led me into engineering. And, and maybe that has something to do with um, some of my, English um, and uh, I guess the softer social sciences teachers maybe discouraged me in some sense from pursuing one of those fields in college. Uh, I, you know, I was naturally pretty good at math um, or I, I think I liked the certainty of math sure. is really what it was. I love the certainty of the sciences. And I think maybe that speaks to that nature is if you don't, if you always are asking why, but and you're doing chemistry or physics or something, and there's an answer at the end. Because if you ask why in an English class, you know, I remember how frustrated I would get when the teacher would talk about the symbolism in The Great Gatsby or something, and they'd say, well, you know, like the blue door there means that the person that's entering it is sad. And I was like, well, really? Do we really know that the blue door, that the 
they wrote a blue door because they wanted us to think that's that or are you adding that layer in? that seems arbitrary. Yeah, maybe they just like blue right exactly like how, how do we know that's true um like do people and you know they would tell you oh but look at all the instances of blue in this you know in this chapter or whatever and i was like i don't think anyone writes like that they think ahead of time how many times i want to talk about sadness so i'm going to add blue in a bunch you know but anyway, so I, I really pursued the physical sciences because I just thought, well, this is these have real answers. And, um, you know, and then it was sort of a natural progression to a career. I think where one of the first transformations I, I went through is in college, I had the opportunity to work at the USDA in a lab. And we were working on how E. coli transfers in samples of spinach or something else. Right. And how it stays alive. And. I was, you know, you're sitting there like every other lab person, you're pipetting tiny drops of E. coli solutions into these millions of, or thousands of little tiny vials. And that was the day I realized like, oh God, I'm never going to be a scientist. Like I, I have no patience for this. I have, you know, cause all mm-hmm. of that research is a 20 year timeline. Yeah. And so that was actually the first realization is that though I actually want all the answers, I have no patience for the long 20 year cycle that, and really where I love to come in is right at the end when we're saying we've kind of figured out most of the answers and then we're translating into, so what? What does it mean? How do we use this information? Um, I worked a little bit in consulting and that was an interesting finding about the opposite end of it, right? Like you, you do work for a company and you give them a lot of ideas, but you never get to find out if they actually did it. Sure. And, what, and then so what? So what happened? Um, and so, I, you know, my first company that uh, I was lucky enough to be on the, the founding team of this company in, in orthopedics, and it was a fascinating space because we had discovered that most knee pain doesn't actually come from what people thought it did. People thought it came from this loss of cartilage. And this doctor had discovered that actually people were getting these tiny stress fractures inside their bones. And that's, if you think about it, a fracture hurts anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. So most pain in joints was actually coming from these fractures. So, uh, Mino, I, I, I'm kind of curious. I want to go on one other detour before we kind of more get into the business. Uh, you know, having an Indian background, and um, you know, I, I know that 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 some of the some of the cultures, you know, especially some of the Asian cultures, but even, you know, if I think about my background as being Greek and a number of other things, and I think about some of the the what we would call the old country ways versus, you know being more American, um, you know, there, there can be cases where, you know, daughters may not be treated as equally as sons or, you know, the, the cultures don't look at women the same way as, as we might hear, you know, we're, we're working, you know, working on, you know, having more equality here. I'm just kind of curious that growing up in an Indian family, you mentioned having to wear the, the sari when your cousins didn't have to, when they could wear shorts, um, were there any other restrictions um, or, or how, how'd your parents support you in what you were trying to do? And what were maybe some of the, the hurdles and barriers that you had to personally overcome in order to, to move forward? In general, you know, my parents were incredibly supportive and I would say that I don't, you know, I brought up that anecdote because it was a relatively rare thing. Um, I don't think my parents really constrained me in any way. They were, um, you know, they put us in sports. We did, we did various things. It's just, I think the most Indian thing about it was that academics was like the most, you know, the highest order priority thing in the house on any given day. Um, and, and so there's a, there's definitely a big cultural bit to that. I think, I think where it came in was this sort of this expectation, this sort of like weirdly, my parents would always weave in this thing that were like, well, you know, don't forget though, that at some point you're going to be primarily responsible for taking the kids or, 
don't forget that you're going to have a husband and he might not like it that, you know, you're X, Y, Z or whatever. And I feel like these things are not, they weren't really trying. It was almost like these comments would come up off the cuff. It's because we, we all carry our biases and our, our cultural learning so deep that we don't even realize we're doing it. You know, I bet my, my parents would not even remember ever saying any of these things sure. to me, but it definitely had an effect. And I, but I would say as opposed to <laughs> it had the unintended effect of just making me more angry about it. Like I, instead of it, I'm me retaining it and saying like, Oh, okay, well let me, you know, let me worry more about my hair. So I, meet a nice boy like instead i was like well screw that i'm not going to do that i refuse to live by those under those rules and if if i have to you know if i have to be in a marriage where this one person refuses to do their part of it i don't need to get married i don't need that like i would rather just not and um i was just fiercely independent in that way you know and i so i think in that sense that uh, whatever they had sort of backfired um but, uh, and I, I think that's definitely a, a trait of mine that almost all of my aunts and uncles or anything else will tell you that, that I've always been deeply frustrated by social and they, they carry over into America too. Let's not forget these expectations of sure. people just because of their different genders. Um, and there's some things that we can never change, right? There's only half of us that are fundamentally capable, for example, of creating other humans. And so that's, that's not a burden that we can share evenly. Fine. <laughs> but, um, you know, and I will always be constrained. Like I always joke, like my husband, no matter what he does, right. He'll always be three times as strong as me. I can lift, I can do that every single day and I'll never catch up to it. But, but that being said, all the things that we can control that are just, we can so much of our lives, 90% of our lives, maybe more. It's just like, we could just all be humans. Yeah. And, um, I think that I've always pushed for that. Um, but in the end, you know, I will say one thing is that it, that sort of thing has really helped me because medicine in general, engineering, business, and I went to undergraduate business school and all of the companies I've worked at have always been easily 60, 70% men. It has been a hundred percent men in the executive leadership. It's been, you know, very often the women that were there were in secretarial roles or something else. And uh, if I work with orthopedic surgeons, right, like 90 something percent of them are men. But I have, I think one of the things that has really helped me succeed is one, all of these men have always been really willing to mentor me and um, see me as someone who, you know, is deserving of their mentorship, which is the only reason I have ever, I have succeeded to whatever extent I have is, you know, under the wings of other, these guys um, for which I'm very thankful. And um, you know, I feel like I've always been able to go toe to toe, maybe because of this sort of obstinacy that my parents encouraged in me by accident. I've been able to go toe to toe with a, a lot of people that they're not used to actually having a woman, especially in their 20s or whatever else, just kind of like hold her ground. And thankfully, for the most part, this curiosity, this drive, this, you know, I'm not going to let somebody hold me down. That is a mark of success. A college or not or anything. I mean, you know, education, you know, I'm a believer in it. It'll, it'll take you a lot of places, but only if you use it. I know a lot of heavily college educated people that, you know, they just want to sit back and wait for the world to give it to them. It doesn't work that way. And you took that leap. You took that leap not too long ago in starting the company Little Mixins. So, um, you know, you, you mentioned the, you know, the, that your kid having the allergy was a, um, was a catalyst for this. 
um, I, I, I've hearing other catalysts, this desire to do this, but, but this is your company now. You're not, I mean, you may have investors, you know, I'd love to know what, you know, what you did to get it started, but, but you, you know, you're running the show here now. It's no more working for anybody else. Right. That's correct. Yeah. And so, um, you know, what was that like? You know, tell me what it felt like to make the initial leap and, you know, were there any fears along the way? Was there confidence? And, um, and, and actually I'd love you to share a little bit with our audience, even what little Mixins is, because I think it's a great concept. Sure. Uh, you know, to answer your first question about the fear and what was it like, I will say that I am, I think one of the reasons kind of going back to the point about, you know, being able to go toe to toe with people is I try and be really, really prepared. Right. So one of the reasons it's, it's not just, I think that if you go toe to toe to some with someone, you better know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so people, when I'm may be being obstinate or persistent or whatever the nicer word for it is, it's, it's, you know, it's, um, it's eventually they're like, all right, she knows what she's talking about. She did her homework. Right. And so I will say that it was less scary than it could have been for, I think, a lot of people because I really did my homework. It's time to transform your business with the help of the execution culture co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster and stronger with real world advice on culture leadership and execution the execution culture available now on amazon is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like optimize your life your team and your organization through clarity purpose and action at nexecute we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision we design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results Connect better, grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real world advice on culture, leadership and execution. See you there. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. Thank you for having me. So, um, you know, we always like to start kind of with a little bit of the life story, right? And, and your life story is your story in this particular case. And it's, I think it's also an interesting one. Um, you know, let's, let's share with, with the audience, you know, how do, how do you become an expert and a coach? And I'll let you describe a little bit more about the specifics of, of, of what you do, not steal any of the thunder. But, uh, but where, where did it all start for you? Let's start at the beginning. Yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. Well, where I ended is I'm an extended sizes or plus size advisor for corporations. And how that all began is that um, I'm somebody who for all of my life has lived in a larger body, has been fat, however you want to call it, right? Um, I first started struggling with my weight. At least the first memory that I had was when I was nine years old and um, my parents were on the verge of divorce and I remember hiding in the pantry and binging. Um, the sounds of the chewing would drown out my parents screaming. And this developed a pattern for me where I would 
eat to take away the sting of things that were not comfortable. And it developed a pattern where I was um, binging as a way of coping. It got worse when I was sexually assaulted when I was 12. Um, You know, I was a latchkey kid. A lot of things happened after my parents' divorce where this is the way that I lived. And what I learned over time was that you know, and now in my adulthood, and I've done a lot of work in my wellness and my recovery um, from binge eating disorder, is that that pattern of behavior, not just pushed away bad things, but it pushed away the good. And also, I didn't develop a lot of coping mechanisms for the stress of life. And so in my adult life, I have had to reframe and rechart my journey that wasn't so reliant on comfort, wasn't so reliant on on, you know, pushing away uncomfortable things. And so I think the, the moment that really turned things around for me, or at least one of those moments, I mean, everybody, everyone, everyone wants that Oprah aha moment where it all changes and everything is not normal. That's, that's not the way the world works, but one moment that shines bright in my memory of, of, changing was that I got one of those adventure travel catalogs in the mail, the kind with glossy pictures of Machu Picchu and Kilimanjaro in the Alps. You get those, right? Yeah. Yeah. We get those too. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I remembered holding it in my hands and seeing the photos and, you know, you know, and I know that like the photos are never as amazing as the real thing. And I said to myself, I'm going to do that when I lose weight. And I realized that I said that about everything. Everything was followed by that clause. Like I'm going to buy myself a whole new wardrobe when I lose weight. I'm going to go to the doctors when I lose weight. And I can't tell you how many people I've met around the country in my speaking engagements who have said that very same thing. And I realized that all of my worth, all of my joy was based on this, this ideal that I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do. I couldn't be the person I wanted to be simply because the size of my body. And I thought, well, that's, that's rubbish, right? I, I want to be in these pictures. I want to have some forward momentum. And so I headed to the, the, you know, outdoor store. And at the time, you know, this is, you know, more than 10 years ago, extended sizes weren't as they are now. I couldn't even, I mean, even the socks were too tight, right? Um, The only thing that I could come away from the store with was a, you know, a Nalgene bottle, the kind of water bottle that if I and the water bottle fell off the side of the mountain, it would survive, but I wouldn't. So I needed one of those, right? And I got the 50 Hikes of New Jersey book. And um, because I live in, I live in Summit, New Jersey. And so I started checking off the list. And I have to tell you, those first 20 minute hikes were terrifying. They were absolutely scary. And I know that they're the kind of hikes that like a preschool class would do. Right. And I live in New Jersey. So like if I got lost, even though I imagined I'd be lost for like three days in the woods, if I got lost, I'd like end up in a target parking lot. I mean, really, right. <laughs> really, and there are no mountains to climb really over there. There, there are some, but you know, yeah. on a scale of the world, it, you know, I'd be fine. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, it just, it shows me this, this journey of, you know, the journey to the customer journey, the journey to wellness is really complicated and paved with a lot of road bumps, you know, where I had to actually physically push myself to be in the place of nature to move forward. And what I realized was that nature and the outdoors was the exact opposite of that life I had of binging. It was, you know, instead of pushing everything away, 
being in the woods was pulling everything in. And that meant, um, you know, taking in the fear of what's going on down the trail, what I might see, what I might encounter, would I be able to do it? It's feeling everything from the the mud kind of sucking my boots down into the ground, seeing and feeling the air and the canopy above me. And it was just so encompassing and real and beautiful that one step led me to another. I mean, it led me to Camel's Hump, which is a mountain that had left me winded in the past. And I, I went to the top of that. I went to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and thankfully back up again without the assistance of a mule. I, you know, and I started to move my body in a way that made me feel strong and powerful. And so I decided upon Kilimanjaro. And Kilimanjaro is the highest mountain that you can climb without the assistance of ice axes and ropes and supplemental oxygen. From there, you, you've started a business. Uh, you know, that, that was the kind of the next step for you. So, so what was the path? I mean, when, when did you decide to convert? Were you working at that time? What, what were you doing previous to, to all of this? Sure. Um, I was a journalist for a long time and I was telling other people's stories, other people's traumas. And as my own story was unfolding, I wanted to write it. And so I wrote Gorge, my journey of Kilimanjaro at 300 pounds. And, you know, kind of the natural journey of an author is to start doing speaking engagements. And so I spoke around the country. I've spoken at Google, at Pfizer, you know, at um, Dartmouth College and all around the all around the country and world about my journey, helping to inspire people to move mountains, um, helping people understand that this is not just a story about weight, but it's about overcoming obstacles. It's about envisioning yourself in the life that you feel like you deserve, and and heading in that direction. Excellent. And well, and and. You know, somebody might think, well, why, you know, well, why would a Google, why would some of these companies have you come and speak? But um, you're actually speaking more to the masses than I think people realize, right? You yeah. know, you know when, when, when you look at the statistics, you, you mentioned not being the Patagonia model, but, um, you know, somewhere, I think it was on your website, I saw that, that is it 67% of all women are, are size 12 or larger? Right, right. And so the, the interesting path, of my business is that I'm really speaking to the masses. Like you said, I'm speaking to the majority of the country and, and that's for the people who um, translate my story to be all about weight. Um, but really my story is also about overcoming obstacles and living in the now. Yeah. And that's where people, a lot of people get really hung up in that point. And so a natural evolution of that is that I started to become an advocate for, um, for eating recovery center and talking about binge eating disorder, because I shared very authentically and open about my struggle with binge eating disorder and started to share that very publicly to help um, show people that there is uh, recovery and hope available to them. Mm -hmm. And that this is a real thing. Like it's not just an issue of just willpower and weight that has been kind of sold by the diet industry for so long, that things are more complicated than that. Um, and so in addition to being an advocate for binge eating disorder, I also started to find my way to companies that started offering extended sizes. So I became an influencer for L.L. Bean. Um, I showcased products for 
places like the North Face and Columbia Sportswear. Keen is another great um, partner of mine sharing these, the opportunity to, to be out in the wild and to be who you are and no matter what your weight is and where you're starting from. I think that's been one of the most joyous transitions in my career to be an influencer. And now I'm really working to become an advisor. I'm not working to become, I am an advisor for brands that want to connect better with the the 67% of women who are size 12 and above. You said something else earlier. I want to kind of backtrack to, um, you talked about the power of journaling and journaling is something, I mean, I've, I've mentioned it to a lot of friends and, and I get a lot of rolled eyes. You know, I, I think it's, you know, if you're, if you're a writer, it's, it's, it, there's more natural to it. And um, I myself am not a writer, but from time to time will utilize journaling just to get my thoughts out of my head and onto paper. Um, what advice would you give somebody who, who, who would roll their eyes at journaling? I mean, and, and I'd love to know what was, um, give an example if you can, without going, you know, you know, into to something that's too private maybe, but, you know, what did that first journal entry look like? Uh, when, when, when you sat down <laughs> um, and wrote that story. Yeah. And I think that I, I do think that journaling gets a bad rap because I, I think that people have this vision that it's like this Burns and Noble fuzzy or leather bound journal. And when actually I was feeling really stressed the other day about, you know, I have some surgeries coming up this year and I, you know, my brain is trying to just cycle again and again. How am I going to get all this done? How, you know, how, how is this all going to work? And I know, I know in my heart of hearts, it's all going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine, but I just needed to map it out. You know, I've got three kids. Um, I've got a business. I've got all these things. In, and once I put it on paper, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, we're good. We're good. We've got this all figured out. You've got a system in place. Everything's going to be perfect. But when everything lives in my head, then, you know, it gets, it clouds me from the things I need to do to move forward. And yeah. so those first, you know, those first journal entries, those first times when I was being authentic and truthful with myself, I, I remember thinking that, I, I do remember one of the first lines that I wrote, and, and actually nobody's ever asked me that question, so I love this question. I remember one of the things that I, I remember one of the things I remember was this uh, image of, of crumbs on my uh, shirt. And I thought of them as like lipstick on the collar, mm-hmm. you know, like if my husband had seen them, he would know what I was up to. Right. Yeah. As if I was hiding secrecy and shame. And it was one of the, one of those phrases actually, of course, makes, made it into gorge and, and maybe other books as well. I can't remember, but you know, it was just such a a metaphor or example of, of how much secrecy and shame I felt that I was harboring. Um, And of course, like he wouldn't think of it that way. Like I was hiding a secret that I was, I was struggling and he would have been there for, to help me. But at the time I just, I felt so awful about it. Like, I couldn't, you know, it, what was really hard for me in the beginning was that, you know, I think this is just food, right? Uh My husband needs three square meals a day and a snack, (laughs) 
every day, every day. It doesn't struggle with it whatsoever. There's not this emotional, red hot nature to food for him. And I just couldn't wrap my brain around the idea that I, I really, really struggle. I really struggle with food and it is charged and it has a lot of it at the time. It had a lot of negative energy of like what I was putting in my body and I was really conflicted about it. And so that journaling exercise really helped. You know, uh, just kind of a weird side question, but you know, I've, I've had other friends who've dealt with, with um, different forms of addiction. A friend of mine's an alcoholic or recovering alcoholic or whatever the term is. And, and, um, in, in almost all of their cases, they had to remove certain triggers from their lives. Um, you know, as you think about foods, I mean, are there just foods that you love, but you realize maybe you can't eat because they trigger other behaviors? Or are there other triggers outside of stress that you need to eliminate? It's a great question. And um, in the beginning, that's what I thought was the way, you know, like, oh, I'm just going to have one of those biggest loser moments where they just empty out the cabinets and start fresh, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but here's the thing. We have to live with food. We have to live with food. And, and I've got three kids. I've got a husband. And uh, one of the biggest things I've learned, and I know that Eating Recovery Center also helps people through this journey, is, is the idea that, you know, food is neutral. It's not good or bad. It, you know, it's a relationship with your body and, and, and dealing with stress and all those other things that can be learned. I mean, uh, I can say this here because it's not necessarily an eating disorder conversation, but I remember having a thing about Nutella. I thought I could never, ever have Nutella in house because it was such a trigger food for me yeah. uh, early on. And, and, and then, you know, as I kind of worked through my own recovery, I knew as a parent, I needed more help and we hired au pairs, you know, you know, au pairs from um, France. That's, yeah where our first au pair came from. And, and every day she started her day with toast with Nutella and raspberries every single day. And I had to have Nutella in the house. And it actually was a conversation with my therapist about how do I manage this and how do I cope with this in the house? And, you know, because Nutella is Nutella, right? Sure. It's not good. It's not bad. It's not anything else. And just because it's in the house doesn't mean I need to eat it by the spoonful, which is was my previous behavior, you know, I'm not going to lie. That's, that's where I was at with it. Um, but now it's just, it's just something in my cabinet. It's not such a big deal. It is just Nutella. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of transformative experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.